Welcome to the Graceway Bible Church Podcast, a place to be immersed in teaching from God's Word. We hope you will be blessed by our sermon series, Difference Makers, Women Chosen by God. Learn with us about how often overlooked women make a difference in the world around them through the power of God. Find out more about this or any of our sermons at www.gracewaybc.org. Join us now as we dive into God's Word. Okay, we're ready to go. Good to be with you uh, here this morning. It's my first time in your church, and I must say that I feel like I have worshipped the Lord. So I'm grateful for the, uh, the traditional as well as the more contemporary style that we shared our hearts with the Lord. We were talking to Him. He was the audience. And I believe He was pleased with what we have today. I've got a PowerPoint up there for you. Let's see if I can get to it. There it is. There is Esther's Facebook picture. Uh, Some people don't like PowerPoint, I understand, uh, but we have become more and more a visual culture. So there's some people who do better without it, but some people who do do better with it. So if you don't like PowerPoint, just close your eyes. the courage of Esther. So our message today as we look at this uh, wonderful woman that God gave us in history and recorded uh, her life for us, a part of her life for us, this, this message of courage is primarily for believers. And that's most of us here. And all of us need courage. We live in very, very strange times, don't we? I mean, it's... Uh, I can say I'm an old man now, and uh, in my whole life, I've never seen it quite like this. Very strange times. And the last thing that the world needs to see are scared Christians. It's the last thing that uh, the world needs to see. And so we need to be people who have a certain amount of spunk and boldness and courage as believers. And this message is primarily to help us with that. But if you're here and you don't know Christ... And in a crowd like this, I don't know everybody. I'm a hit-and-run preacher. I come in and blow out. I just, I, uh, I don't know. I don't have to live with you like the other guys do. Okay, I just leave town. And so there may be someone here without Christ. And I know I came to Christ in 1974 in a church service where they gave a come forward and Billy Graham invitation. And after eight stanzas, of music. I walked forward. It wasn't the walking forward that saved me. It was trusting Christ as my only hope for heaven that saved my soul. God's work on the cross is the only thing. You can never do enough good deeds to buy one splinter of the cross that Jesus died on. Remember that. And so if you're here today, you need a certain amount, and you're lost, you don't know Christ, you need a certain amount of boldness to step out and trust him, and I guarantee you, your life will be different. Well, as we look at the story of Esther, and you might turn in your Bibles to that beautiful book in the Bible. It's about that far in. (laughs) The book is a book that never mentions the word God. You've heard that. You've read about that. You've seen that. 
doesn't mention God, but God is in every single verse. You need to understand that as we go through it. And then our passage in particular is Esther 4, 11 to 17. But I want to give you the, the we want to have a running start into that. And we have, uh, in the first two chapters, we have Esther replacing Vashti. Vashti was the pagan queen. She was the head queen of the harem. Now the king, Ahasuerus, or as the Greeks called him, Xerxes, was a powerful and very brutal, ruthless man. And depending on how you date the book, he may have just come back, when this story happens, he may have just come back from getting beaten by the Greeks in one of their famous battles back in the day. And so he may not be very popular right now in the kingdom because he's lost. And so he's in a foul mood, perhaps. At least that's what some think as the story begins. And Vashti, the queen, and he has a harem of probably hundreds of women. You remember Solomon's mistake. And he calls for Vashti, the chief queen, to come, and she disobeys her husband. And of course, that, that was a major scandal. And so he removed her as the head queen, and he goes on a search, a little bit like your pastoral search, I hope, although I hope it's not a beauty pageant. <laughs> and they find this beautiful young woman. She's Jewish, but as the story unfolds, they don't know that she's Jewish. And she's chosen, and she becomes the head queen, the queen of the, all the kingdom, which went from about uh, close to India all the way down to Egypt. And so she is in a, an interesting place, nonetheless, as you think through that. Well, then you have, as it moves on in the story, after she's chosen to be queen, she has a cousin, as some say, or an uncle, Mordecai. At the end of chapter 2, he discovers a plot against the king's life, and he's, of course, Jewish. And the king is delivered from assassination because of this Jewish man. It's interesting how God has placed his chosen people in certain situations to bring it about. A little bit later, we're going to talk about the providence of God. But then uh, we enter into the story with Haman, the Hitler of that time period, his anti-Semitism. He gets mad at Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow down to him, and he's placed as second to the king in the kingdom, but Mordecai won't bow down. And as a result, in chapter 3, it tells us that Haman, out of his hatred for Mordecai, and when he finds out he's Jewish, and it, it's because he's Jewish that he won't bow down, he decides to commit genocide against all the people, the Jewish people. And there's a genocide decree. He talks the king into it. And the king signs papers, and the king can't change them once he signs them. And so on a certain day, anybody in the kingdom has a right to kill a Jew. It's not a whole lot different than the 1930s in Germany, the 1940s. It was a planned, deliberate genocide that was being offered. And we 
we see that Mordecai sends that decree to Esther, that genocide decree that says, have all, let everybody kill Jews. And she's a Jew. But nobody knows she's a Jew yet in the story. And then Esther examines that decree. She reads it. And then we come to our passage. In fact, she sends one of her, uh, one of the eunuchs that is over her to go talk to Mordecai and find out about all this. And that's how she gets the decree. And she reads it and examines it. And that's where we are at this point. And so the passage, 4, 11 to 17, for the sake of time, I won't read it because we'll be going through it uh, verse by verse as we look at it. But it unfolds like this. She begins by stating an obstacle in verse 11. And then you have Mordecai's response, 4, 12 to 14. And that is, I think, these three verses is kind of the hinge of the whole book. This is the key passage for the entire book. And then they have Esther's response to Mordecai's response. Mordecai had talked to her about the obstacles she was facing, and so now she responds, and that's where the courage comes in, and we have to explore that as we go along. At verse 17, at the end of that, Mordecai uh, has some action that he takes to help Esther. The obstacle, she states, is in verse 11. If you look at verse 11 in your Bibles, it says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And that scepter is the, the authority of the king, and he can veto the, the law in that particular case that someone who comes into him without being called deserves death. He can veto that and say, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive that. Uh, then she says, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, when you look at the obstacle, it's got two parts. She says, I will die if I go to the king and he refuses me. Now, we sit in our air-conditioned offices and read the Bible, and we look back at that, and we go, well, it's, you know, we know how God ends the story, so uh, we sometimes read it as if there's no pressure on her. But there's quite a bit of pressure on her. If she decides to go and talk to the king, she might die just by going to him. So she's putting a lot on the line with this. And she, so she says to Mordecai, you know, you know, I might die. And then second, he hasn't called for me in a month. You know, I could take the opportunity to talk to him if he would call for me, but it's been a whole month. He's got a harem with, a, you know, hundreds of women probably. And she hasn't seen him in a month. So what are the chances she might, she'll have to go intentionally to him when she's not supposed to? So how does that work out? Mordecai gets her response. She sends it to him. And he says four things to her in this section. This is the, you want to underline some things perhaps in here. And I've, I did give some uh, handouts with uh, fill in the blanks to keep you awake. <laughs> At least keep some of you awake. Um, first, he says, your position will not save you. Look at verse 13. 
Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He's saying, listen, you, you won't be able to hide the fact that you're a Jew forever. And someone will know, and then that decree will, that genocide decree will be implemented by someone who hates the Jews, maybe Haman himself. So your position will not save you. Remember that. You're afraid of dying if you go to the king. Well, let me tell you, you need to be afraid of dying if you don't go to the king. So she's kind of caught in the pickle, right? right in the middle. Then Mordecai's response number two is, if you refuse to help, your family will be destroyed. Remember, her family is outside with the others. All of her loved ones, all of her relatives, as well as all the Jewish people, her family will be destroyed. And said, so you need to think about them. If you're a key person who can do something about this, you need to think about them. They are going to die. Number three, if you refuse to help, God will give the honor to stand up for the Jews to someone else. Now, let's, let's look at these uh, couple passages here. Verse 14, if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. She'll lose her family, and if she doesn't stand up, God will may raise up someone else to deliver. And I think that's interesting. Do you remember the story of the three Hebrew children? Once I had a lady come to me for counseling in my church when I was pastoring in the free state of Texas. And uh, her husband had walked out on her. And she said, I have faith that he will come back. And then I said something that caused her to leave my church. Would you like to hear what I said that caused her to leave my church? Are you interested in that? I said, well, if your husband doesn't come back, are you still going to follow Jesus? The three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar came about to pitch him in? So, and they said, our God can deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. Amen. Sometimes I think we get little, uh, we treat God as if he's a celestial slot machine. And we pull the lever and he's supposed to kick in for us. We need to look at prayer maybe a little bit differently than that. Uh, but it's interesting he says somebody else, will, God will raise somebody else up. And then he issues this challenge, and this is probably the most famous verse in the entire book, uh, if you look at it. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I don't like the word not in the, the ESV translation, but, but the idea is, is generally correct. Who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? The word kingdom there is not the coming messianic kingdom to fulfill the Davidic promises. It's, and I don't think it's even God's general rule. I think it's his plan with Israel. Sometimes we call that in theology the theocratic kingdom. But uh, who knows in God's plan if you haven't come to this place and this time for a specific purpose. 
And we live our lives without thinking about that kind of stuff, don't we? There, there are certain turning points in all of our lives, touch points, and change, change opportunities, and opportunities to make a stand. And sometimes we do right, and sometimes we don't. And we need to remember, you know, maybe God has brought us to this difficult place for a specific purpose. And he challenged us, sir. Yeah, your life is on the line. Either way you go. But right now, you're right in front of it. And so, think, think about that. This may be your special time. And how does Esther respond to that? I'm glad you asked. Number one, she calls for the Jews of Shushan, that's the capital, to fast for three days and three nights. She seems to understand that she can't do this alone. Now, for those who say that the, the book Esther, and <clears throat> some doubted it was in the Bible because the word God did not appear, but wait a minute. Fasting in Jewish custom always involves prayer. Well, who were they praying to? God. So the idea that God is not in the book is foolish. It's all over the place. And so she calls for help. She's telling them, would you fast for me? And what does fasting do? You know, I know we fast for, uh, you know, this diet and that diet. We do those kind of things. That's not spiritual fasting. Fasting is refusing to eat and taking our time to intensify our thoughts toward God and talk to Him. And that's what fasting involves. It's intensifying prayer. And she calls upon the Jewish people in the capital to intensely pray for her because now she's decided, I'm going to go. And then she says, uh, she says, I'm going to fast and my maidens, the ladies with me, who attend me will also fast during this time. Now, I always read that and I wonder if those uh, maidens voluntarily did that because they have to do what the queen says. But maybe they loved her enough, they joined her in that. I don't know. Don't know if they were even believers. But she says, my and my maidens, the women with me, we will pray, it says there in verse 15. It says, gather all the Jews, verse 16, Hold a fast on my behalf. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then Esther will go in to see the king, which is unlawful. Notice how it says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Not God's law. It's against the law of the king's court to go to the king without being called for. And she decides to do it, resigned to break the Persian law to help her people and follow God's law. And there comes a time when those choices have to be made. And then finally she says it this way, I will die for my people if necessary. Simple words, it says, if I perish, I perish. Here, you underline this, this is the statement 
of courage. Now, th at this point, it's just words, but does she go ahead and do this? And the answer is yes, she does. I will die for my people if necessary. I've always wondered what I would die for. Would I die for the cause of Christ? If he put a gun to my head and said, deny God, would I do that? If he would put a gun to my head and say, deny the Bible, would I do that? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist. If you put a gun to my head and, and say, quit being a Baptist, I might say, show me the Presbyterian church. You know, there's some things that are more important than others. But you tell me to deny the Bible, to deny God, deny Christ, would I do that? Peter did that. Others have done that. But many thousands upon thousands throughout church history have taken a stand. And they tell us that around 160,000 Christians die every year on this planet because of their faith. Esther says, I will die for my people if necessary. Now the last verse is kind of uh, Mordecai joining. He does what Esther asks. He calls for the Jews of Shushan to fast for three days. So he, as a leader in the Jewish community, helps her with that. Now how did that work out for her? The moment came as the story unfolds as we get into the uh, chapter 5. And she has the courage, she gets, she bucks up and she goes in to see the king. And at that moment she's standing there and the king has to decide what to do. Now, keep it in context. Remember what happened before. Vashti, who she replaced, had been removed as queen because she what? Disobeyed the king. And now here's Esther breaking the king's law by even showing up. And that's got to be in the king's memory. So the king has that scepter. He can hold it out and accept her. Or go, what are you doing here? Get out of my sight and have the men haul her off and kill her according to the Persian law. I don't know how long he held that scepter thinking about that. The scriptures don't tell us. But he finally decided, what do you want? And he holds the scepter out. Now, do you think God was turning the king's heart in the direction that he wanted it to go? I mean, God, God does not control us like robots. But there are times when God puts thoughts into our minds. And there are times when the devil puts thoughts into our minds. And there are times when we put thoughts into our minds. And I believe probably God was speaking to the king's heart and mind and turned him to find favor with this beautiful woman that he chose to be his number one queen. So she goes in and she is delivered. Then as the story unfolds, Esther's boldness continues. It's not just that moment. She actually sets up a banquet and she uh, <clears throat> saves all the Jewish people from genocide because 
She can't just go into the king. She has to ask, I want a banquet. And, th and she invited Haman to that as well. And in the end, the gallows that Haman had put there for Mordecai, the Jew that he hated the most, and of course, the gallows are probably more elaborate than that simple picture I have. Uh, but Haman ends up hung on that same gallows. I remember when I was uh, at uh, Auschwitz in 2019, in the summer of 2019, I got to visit Poland for the Friends of Israel, and I went to a tour of Auschwitz, the death, one of the death camps, the major death camp, where most of the Jewish people were killed. The largest number were killed. And I remember walking uh, in the Birkenau section of that, and I walked, or the, the Auschwitz section of that, and I walked in and stood there under the nozzles where the gas came out in this big open area. And I, you know, just a creepy feeling just comes over you. And then you walk from that room into the next room, and there's the, uh, the gas chambers where they burn the bodies. They set up like cash registers, with, put the bodies on there and shove them into the furnaces. And then they took us outside and walked us across the street, and there were gallows. And I go, that's interesting. What's this for? And after World War II, after the right guys won, they had the Nuremberg trials, where they tried the Nazi, many Nazis for war crimes against humanity. And the commandant of Auschwitz, who killed so many, they brought him there to hang him. So the last thing that he saw were the gas chambers and the building where they gassed all those people. And as I'm standing there, I was overjoyed. You think at a moment like that, I'd just be kind of sombering about but wait. I felt justice. They did it right. They did it right. And Haman got justice. He tried to wipe out every Jewish person in the Persian Empire. And he ended up wiped out and destroyed by the Lord. The Jewish holiday of Purim comes from the Jewish victory over their enemies. As the story continues, they can't, uh, they really can't uh, change the law that the Jews are going to be killed. So they let anybody kill Jews on that particular day. Uh, but uh, another law went out that the Jews can defend themselves. And you know, and Jews oftentimes are pretty good fighters. Look at modern Israel. And they won. And they celebrate the holiday of Purim. It's usually late winter, early spring, about a month before Passover. Uh, and they celebrate that. And they have parties and parades. It's, 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 uh, they, almost, they dress up like Halloween. And it's a big deal for them, the story of Esther. It's one of their favorite stories about how God protected them centuries ago. Now, reflections and applications quickly. Courage for a believer is strengthened by these things. Prayer to God. And I was happy to see that you took prayer seriously this morning here in the congregation. Some churches do not take that seriously. If you look at Acts 4, 23 and 31, the Holy Spirit moved and they, they, they prayed and they were filled with the Spirit and the Spirit gave them boldness. 
And then understanding that help, helping others is more important than self-interest. So as you're confronting difficult situations, don't just ask, what does this mean for me? Ask what it means for others. And then, and by the way, one more, one more story from the Friends of Israel for terms of self-interest. We have a, one of our French workers, Jean Massenco. He and his wife, Jeanette, they led a lady to the Lord who was a Holocaust survivor. She now has Alzheimer's and she forgot, she's forgotten that she got saved. But she was just a little infant on the train on the way to Auschwitz. And somebody held her out at a stop. And the train stopped, you know, pick up people, stuff. And somebody held her out of the car, held her out for somebody to grab on the outside. And that person took her and ran with her. And she got away and survived. And somebody took care of her. But you know, that person who took her, because the Nazi guards were all over and they were, they'd shoot people for doing that. And God protected. That was a, a moment, uh, you know, I'm not going to take my interest at heart, I'm going to help this little infant. And they did that. And then there's that awareness of the providence of God. Do you believe that God moves in history? Do you believe, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose? Do you believe that? We believe that. And we think about what's happening today with all the, the vaccines and the COVID and the troubles. Just recently, three people have died in our church, the church that I attend, with COVID. These are hard times. But we need to have courage. I don't mean to be foolish. We don't need to be foolish. Courage is not always foolishness. She wasn't, you know, Esther wasn't foolish in what she did. She was spiritual in showing her courage. And so many, I'm talking to believers here, let me say to you, try to live this week thinking about the idea of courage. And maybe it'll make a difference as you interact with people. You know, we need boldness to share the gospel. We need boldness to talk to people about the Lord. And let's ask God. Give us that person we can talk to and give me the boldness to take advantage of it when it comes. And maybe it'll make a difference in their lives and maybe you and I can be like Esther who is a, an example for us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your written word and the story of Esther which we take as true history and from you. And we thank you that you have used it to teach us how to have courage, how to stand up in the greatest time of need. And Lord, I pray today that you help us not to fail those you've called us to reach. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. 
For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.